Thanks for downloading the UW Alumni Voices podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and today's special guest is Rebecca Johnson, CEO and co-founder at the Type 1 Diabetes Family Center. Diagnosed in 2001 with Type 1 Diabetes, a complex autoimmune disease, Rebecca's passionate about supporting others with Type 1 to overcome the challenges of the condition. She's the co-founder and the CEO of the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre in Perth, an award-winning Australia's first centre for families impacted by Type 1, offering community-based clinical care, innovative education programs, information services, and parent psychologist support. Opened in 2015, the Family Centre now supports hundreds of people with Type 1 to live without limits. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So let's get straight into it. I want to take me back to your time at UWA, uh, where you studied law and arts. What do you remember about the first time you stepped foot on campus? Oh, the first time I stepped foot on campus, I, I just remember being excited. Uh, it had been a really big, long, hard road to get to university. I worked really hard in high school um, and I was really proud to have arrived finally at uni and um, into I think that next stage of life as an adult where you had a bit of a bit more freedom and a chance to make some more decisions about your future. I think that I remember I, there was so much going on on campus socially there was clubs and sport and um, all sorts of things to sign up for and I thought it was just an exciting time there were so many opportunities in front of me and I loved that the buzz on campus. Uni life initially I think that first year was really really busy I enrolled in actually first year engineering commerce, um, which I obviously changed a little later on and just trying to get my head around the classes and navigating new systems and um, obviously all of the heavy maths that we were doing there, which was not my strong suit um, and getting to know all the people socially. Yeah, it was awesome. So what were some of the clubs that you joined and did you join in the sport clubs as well or did you just like sign up for everything because you were that excited to, to be on campus? Um, I signed up for a number of things. I was the fresher rep um, for engineering and obviously there was a fair bit of um, social stuff to organise through that. I was also involved in rowing uh, and on the sports on campus, you know, you sign up for the gym and be part of all of that. Um, there are a couple of clubs that I was involved with, but it was something that during my first semester, because I became so unwell, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes during that semester, um, a lot of that came to a bit of an all a grinding halt, um, and I kind of picked it back up again a little later on when I rejoined the uni. Yeah, can you tell me what like uni life was like for you? You know, in, as you said, you were diagnosed in two thousand one. You've had over forty thousand injections of insulin, which is just I just can't comprehend that. Can you explain what it's like to live with type one diabetes and how much of an impact it has? on your day-to-day life, but also what it was impacting on your studies as well. I remember in that first semester, I progressively got sicker and sicker. I lost a huge amount of weight. I started drinking litres and litres of water every day. My vision blurred, I became so fatigued. I pretty much stopped engaging in uni life altogether. And then I was diagnosed by my GP with type 1 diabetes, type 1 is an autoimmune disease, which means it's not related to lifestyle factors, that's type two diabetes. Um, Rather, type one diabetes is genetic. So my dad had a brother with it, my gran had a brother and a sister with it. Um, And my immune system was predisposed by my genetic makeup to be triggered by some factor in my environment. And scientists and doctors still don't quite know what that is to suddenly turn on all the cells in my body that make insulin. 
it destroyed all those cells and leaving me, as you just mentioned, dependent on injected insulin for the rest of my life. Insulin's got a really important job in the body. It's there to run a whole lot of metabolic functions, but critically, it's what allows us to metabolize the carbohydrates and to a certain extent, the proteins in the food that we eat. Carbs turn into glucose in the blood um, and they push blood glucose levels up and insulin allows that glucose in the body, in the blood to enter the cells to be used as energy and that brings blood glucose levels back down. So it's really important to maintain glucose levels in a target range, it's quite a narrow range, um, in order to avoid all of the devastating complications that are associated with type, uncontrolled type 1 diabetes. So in that first semester of uni, I'm 17 and I had this huge bomb dropped right into the middle of my life with the diagnosis. Um, I suddenly had to check my blood glucose levels between five and 10 times a day. I had to inject myself with insulin five to seven times a day. I have to count the grams of carbohydrate, fat and protein in every single meal, every snack, every coffee, every mouthful of food. I had to start managing the impact of physical activity, which can make my blood sugar levels spike or drop depending on how fast my heart is beating. And I had to keep a whole lot of other factors in my head that can impact my blood sugar levels, like stress, the amount of sleep that I've had, consuming alcohol, even the temperature outside impacts my sugar levels. It's a really complex disease to manage and it takes up a, a lot of bandwidth. And I think the thing for people to understand about living with type 1 diabetes is that with pretty much every other medical condition, your doctor controls how much of your medication you take and when you take it. it you know, your doctor will say, here's a 200 microgram tablet, take it three times a day. But with type 1 diabetes, your doctor says, here's insulin. I can't tell you how much to take or when to take it. I can only give you some guidelines around that. You need to decide your doses based on the myriad factors that are influencing your blood sugar levels in that moment. Um, and by the way, if you make a mistake, insulin will kill you. So it's a massive burden to shoulder, um, particularly as a young person. There's no good time to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, but 17 was a particularly rough time. And I found it really hard to get my head and heart wrapped around. I think it's, um, it's a complicated, frustrating, unrelenting medical condition to live with and it impacts every aspect of life and uni life when you wanna be out um, playing sports, studying, socializing, you know, travel, work, juggling all those things, all of a sudden um, you have a big medical condition to manage too. So uh, it was a real challenge to, be, to have that experience in first year uni. Yeah, because you would have been, you know, seeing all your friends go out, being able to do everything that you wish you could be doing. And I'm just curious because it seems like, I guess, at first there was quite a limitation in what you can do. But for you, later in life, there hasn't been any limits to what you put on with living the life of Type 1 because you've, swapped, you've twice swum solo across the Rottnest Channel, sailed across the Atlantic and became a scuba dive guide to prove it as well so what changed from that point to i guess feeling like you've got these limitations to being able to just take take on the world i had a lot of support around me um, in that for example i remember uwa being very accommodating um, and i'm really grateful for that by the point point i was diagnosed in the semester i've been i was past the cutoff point for being able to rely on my TER score to 
to re-enter uni or change course. And I pretty much failed the first semester because I'd been so unwell. Um, and I remember my mum and I went to see both the deans of engineering and commerce and they were compassionate. They recognised what had happened to me um, and I was allowed to reapply for uni the following year based on my TER. So I think that having people understand even that early in the piece who had had experience with people with type 1 before was really important and I had a few quite lucky I guess encounters particularly with those deans of those schools who'd had experience of type 1 in their own lives um, which they relayed to me um, to help kind of help kind of reintegrate life um, and start following through a little bit more. Josh, that was a terrible answer, sorry. Um, but I, I guess what I wanted to, I think is important to think about is when you're absolutely right with type 1 diabetes, having all these perceived barriers placed in front of me by medical professionals, by the community's perception of people with type 1 diabetes, you can't get medical clearance to scuba dive, you can't get medical clearance to sail more than five miles offshore, you can't swim safely in open water, you can't travel to remote places. My take on all that uh, was watch me and over the past 20 years I've really made a point of breaking down every barrier I've encountered in relating to type 1 as you say you know I've swum to Rottnest twice solo I've become a paddy dive master I authored along with others new Australian guidelines around diving and diabetes which were released in 2016 and lifted that um, that inability to access paddy dive training that was um, in front of people with type 1, um, travelled extensively to all sorts of wild places and managed my medical through it. So I think type 1's actually given me this big drive to take the biggest bite out of my life that I possibly can. And, and I kind of see it as a blessing now because I might not have done all those things if not for my condition. Now, do you feel like that when you were at university, did you have a, I guess, a career in mind? And then when once, I guess, you got diagnosed, did you feel like, that there was a potential barrier for the career you wanted to pursue because, you know, after graduating from UWA, you worked on yachts and became a dive guide and worked in Central America and the US and the Caribbean as well. Yeah, look, I, I finished law and arts and I've got to say, I didn't really find my groove with law as a career. Um, I undertook a few clerkships in my final years and I worked out pretty quickly being in the workplace that law wasn't going to be for me. Um, and taking some time out to travel and do something completely different is the very best thing I could have done. Um, I went out and experienced the world by sailing and diving um, over a couple of years in some really interesting countries. I think it helped me learn how to think about life differently, get out of the Perth bubble that I'd been in. Um, it gave me more of a global view, a bit of distance, um, from the sense of being on the set path that I think we can feel when we get out of high school and go to university and then it's like, right, now I'm in the workplace. And I just needed that brain break um, to have a really good, long, hard think about what lights me up, what do I want to do next? Um, and it occurred to me during that time that I was deeply interested in health. I think about health, I read about health, I was really engaged with managing my own health condition and as my compass started to turn back towards coming home, I set towards a really different qualification, um, a Master of Public Health, which I enrolled in when I got home. And I, I loved that course. I got up every day so curious about what I was going to learn next. 
And I think it was, what I loved about it was it was that combination, an unusual combination of coming from a legal background where we have systems thinking plugged into us from the start. We have, we think about legal and regulatory systems, political levers, and combining that with another type of systems thinking in population health, um, you know, healthcare systems, environmental health, disease prevention, health informatics, behavioural cultural issues, how they impact health. Both those arenas give us this ability to see things from the systemic perspective. And, and I love that little space on the Venn diagram where population health and the law intersect. It's a really interesting space to be. Interesting, yeah, because not too many people think about health and law intersecting with one and with one another. No, they don't. And I think that's why it was a bit of an unusual combination um, because of people come into a Master of Population or Public Health, usually from a clinical background. I was the only non-clinical person on the course, um, which you know gave it for me some, some interesting challenges in that I had to really work super hard on understanding research methods and things like that that people had had a whole you know background in that I was coming to very cold but it was something that in my first role which was with the Cancer Council of Western Australia um, I had this really challenging and interesting work uh, in front of me around alcohol marketing to children um, junk food marketing to kids as well well um, we look we also were in tobacco control and and occupational cancer risk and all of these areas around cancer risk and prevention all have a legal element to them and bringing that skill set in and that thinking in was was a really interesting thing to do now another interesting thing you did was working in fiji for the red cross can you explain what your role was and also, what life is really like there? Because I guess for Fiji, for most people, they just see this, you know, these beautiful beaches. Yes, I think people thought that I was sitting on white sandy beaches under coconut palms drinking cocktails for a lot of my time there, <laughs> but I can assure you that I wasn't. Um, I worked on a project that was jointly funded by United Nations Development Program, the Global Environment Fund and the World Health Organization, and it was around adaptation to climate change as it relates to human health. Um, so we were really focusing on climate sensitive disease prevention. There'd been some research work done where they overlaid um, meteorological data and epidemiological data to show that um, there were certain diseases that really spike in incidence um, after some of the impacts that Fiji and other countries in the Pacific are seeing that are related to climate change. So much heavier rainfall, unseasonal rainfall, um, more hurricanes and, and big climate events like that. So my job was to be part of a team that um, did a wide-scale risk assessment. We had about 1,600 households over 10 project sites and that ranged from inner city squatter settlements all the way up to really remote villages in the highlands. And we were working in Italke, so ethnic Fijian communities and also in the Indian Fijian communities as well. Um, and we had to run that risk assessment, which was a big survey-based tool, uh, crunch the data and establish the needs and risk profiles of each of those communities, and then go on to design community health interventions that could be tailored um, to the risk profile of the community and delivered on the ground by Fiji Red, health, uh, Fiji Red Cross health volunteers. 
Um, and that was around preventing, identifying and managing those four communicable diseases that really came to the top when they looked at the original research. And that was uh, typhoid, dengue, leptospirosis and diarrheal diseases. So, so very much two waterborne diseases um, and vector in, in dengue. And then leptospirosis is associated with rats and rat populations. So again, it was one of those things where, you know, you had to have quite a good understanding of, of how those diseases are transmitted and what are the risk factors associated with them in order to design the interventions. It was really So how did that opportunity present itself? It, I volunteered through Australian Volunteers International and at that point uh, Red Cross had, um, had been contracted to um, help run that program and they were looking for public health professionals to go out into the Pacific and various other locations around the world and be deployed um, in these sorts of community health projects. Very good. Now, in 2014, you established the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre, an Australian first facility and service for people with Type 1 diabetes in Stirling, opening in 2015. What was the motivation to starting this venture and who helped you? Who provided guidance? Was there any you know, mentorship along the way as well? The Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre has just been the most remarkable opportunity for me, both personally and professionally. We have had some amazing people help us along the way and we opened our beautiful centre here in Stirling uh, in 2015. And I'm just, I'm so proud of the work that we're doing here. The, the motivation for starting the Family Centre was the Type 1 community in Australia, which is a com community that needs more help than it gets. Um, health in the diabetes community is something that really needs more focus. Um, as an example, there's a really important blood test that people with diabetes uh, get to measure the extent to which their blood glucose levels have been in the target range for the previous three months. The test is called the HbA1c test. Um, it's a key marker of health in diabetes management. Now, the most recent audit of paediatric the diabetes services showed that we've got 73% of kids in Australia are falling outside the target HbA1c. It gets worse in young people. We've got 80% of 18 to 25 year olds falling outside the key targets for HbA1c. And it gets a little bit better when you're in adults. We've got about 50 to 70% of adults, again, falling outside those targets. Now, What's important about this is that if you're not meeting these vital clinical targets for blood glucose management, you're putting yourself at risk of um, all of the diabetes complications that we hear about, and they're devastating. Having high blood glucose for um, a sustained period of time does damage to every system and tissue in the body, the, the eyes, the, uh, the nerves in the feet, the kidneys, all of these systems are very vulnerable to high, uh, prolonged exposure to high blood glucose. So we've got um, a higher risk of complications like blindness, kidney failure, lower leg, lower leg amputation. So we have a health picture in this community that is really urgent and really serious. And that was part of the motivation for setting up the Type 1 Diabetes Centre. But the other piece is that we've got really heavy statistics around mental health comorbidities in the type one community. So we have one in four young people reporting moderate to severe depression or anxiety. Now compare that to the stats in the non-diabetic um, population. So we have you know, one in seven young people um, experience a mental health condition and one in 20 
young people experiencing a major depressive disorder. And those statistics are compelling in themselves, but when we almost double, if not, and really increase that risk by living with type 1 diabetes as well, again, this is a community that urgently needs more help. I think that we can look at these statistics and there's, there's a whole lot of other ones around disorder, disordered eating, diabetes distress, family breakdown, school performance, um, and say that we can see that this is a community that's crying out for more support. Um, but I think it's important to look at the statistics and ask um, what's actually happening. We Do we have, um, and I think the, the narrative has been around that these are the statistics that we should, should simply expect. You know, people are dealing with a really complicated autoimmune condition, every day's a challenge, um, they're just not up for it and they're failing as a consequence. Um, and I think that's a fairly easy conclusion to reach and it has been up until now. Um, but the question I ask is, do we have the model wrong? Um, do we need to start doing diabetes differently? And is this a community that needs more help than it's getting and needs help in a different way? And that's where the Type 1 Family Centre comes in. We know the lonely road of Type 1 diabetes and the invisible burden, and we work to make that burden lighter. Um, and that's where our mission comes in, and that is to connect and support and inspire Inspire people of all ages living with type 1 diabetes and the people who care about them in Western Australia. And we do that through a really new and very different model that expands on the traditional model of diabetes care, which is very, very medical and very much centered around insulin therapy. At the Family Centre, we zoom out. We see insulin therapy, yes, it's an important, it's an absolutely key pillar of diabetes management, but the other pillars in the diabetes model that we promote is in an integrative model of care are around nutrition, exercise, mental wellness, peer support, that wraparound service that helps us manage not just our medical, but our minds and our bodies and our spirit together. So what we provide is a to keep going back into the hospital as outpatients to receive their medical services. We have dietetics and nutrition, uh, of course, insulin therapy and diabetes technology. We have our diabetes educators and a clinical psychology service. Um, so we prioritise these key pillars of care in our clinical offering. But wrapping around that is this jam-packed program. We have education programs. We train babysitters, for example, and school teachers in how to look after kids with type 1. Um, we run camps. We have four camps a year for families and teenagers. They're the first camps for those, um, those groups impacted by type 1 in Western Australia. We run social and community events for people of all ages, tens of events a year. We have advocacy services. And one of the key parts of the service that has helped us reach people regionally has been two hugely active online communities. So they run 24 seven um, and they, they're, they're full of engagement. We had, I think about 10 and a half thousand engagements last month alone across those two communities. So every aspect of our facility and service design um, and programming is co-designed with the community. It's um, really important that the community is at the centre of um, the decision making that happens around what they need our service to deliver. Um, and it's just a joy to be realising the vision 
um, and be part of leading and creating this service that we believe is so urgently needed. Now, there's a lot there to unpack, but you know, you work in the non-for-profit sector. It can be quite complex. Is there anything you wish you knew back then that you do now? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's a vertical learning curve, building an organisation from the ground up. Um, We had to just figure everything out. Um, All the things that you don't think about when you walk into a job in an established organisation our legal structure, governance procedures, um, brand, website, marketing collateral, how we're going to reach and engage people, uh, what are the programs and services that we're we're going to offer, what will they deliver, how will we measure that, who's on the team, how are we going to raise funds, keep records, policies, procedures, all of that, all the way down to, you know, what photocopier are we going to buy? Um, I think there's so much decision-making and so much knowledge that's needed all at the same time. And I have to credit my board for their support. Um, we have had an amazing board um, who, particular, in particular, my mentors on that board have been my chairman, Jeff Newman, and our deputy chair, Rick Malone. Um, these two men have been mentors to me in, in so many ways. They've guided me, they've connected me in with their networks, they've been sounding boards for me, um, they've helped me figure so many things out and encouraged me. Um, startup is a crazy, crazy time and you're wearing 20 hats all at once and being pulled in 20 different directions all at the same time and it can be completely overwhelming. And so I've been very lucky to have had um, mentors through my board who have really helped me along the way. Are you able to share like the role of your board and I'm also curious, do you get approached from other not-for-profits asking asking you for any insight or advice on what, why you, how you're so successful? We have had um, a number of approaches in the last couple of years, actually, from people who are in the diabetes community in other places uh, in Australia and around the world who have said, how did, you, how did we get this started? Um, in fact, I'm talking to a lady right now in Melbourne and um, the, I think that it's so lovely to have seen our work be noticed by others living with type 1 diabetes who can also see that same urgent need that we saw in their own communities and that interest around, you know, how do we set up a similar model? And that's what I'd really love to see is is a model like the Diabetes Centre here um, being not only for people with type 1, but for people across all sorts of different chronic diseases. I think there's real value in what we're doing here. It is new. It is is unique and of real interest to people who live with um, challenging chronic diseases all over, and I'd love to see that that work replicated. Now, you're constantly making a difference in so many people's lives you've won many awards what motivates you what gets you up in the morning i occasionally take a moment to sit back and just reflect and think about the type one community that we've built here through the family center Um, at our events i watch the rooms full of people i always take a moment to step back and just watch um, little kids all the way through to adults who are all there helping each other through this long, tough journey with type one together because the family centre brought them together. Um, And now and then I get a little card um, or a drawing from one of the kids 
or an email or a note or a hug or some words where people say that how coming into the family centre has changed their life. And, and that's the stuff, you know, that's what makes me get out of bed in the morning. That's the most rewarding position to be in because I have type one too and I feel every win, every success, every challenge that is overcome, every positive health shift right there with the people in the type one tribe and that's so motivating. But, you know, you're quite positive. Are there days where you're down? Is there days where, you know, the challenges seem like they're too far, they're too high to overcome? Yes, of course. Um, you know, all our ideas have a tendency to snowball and grow arms and legs and the in-tray is never empty, um, especially in a job like mine where it can be very emotionally intense as well as being just busy and tense all the time. Um, and I think what I've learned is, slowly I've learned this and I'm still not very good at it, is to, is to pace myself. You've got to pace yourself. Um, I didn't... At the outset, I threw myself into everything and, you know, despite being counselled by my board um, and my mentors, I didn't pace myself and I very nearly burned out. Um, and I'm much more strict now in switching off in the evenings and the weekends um, and taking time to recharge. And I've discovered this love for open water swimming that has really helped with that um, and I think that, you know, I can't physically check my phone or respond to people when I'm in the water and I think there's something about being in the ocean and the natural environment and that repetitive movement with swimming that I find very meditative. Um, and, yeah, I think that, I mean, that's why I'm training for my third Roto Solo right now, more for the mental health benefits for me than anything else. Far out. You're crazy doing a third one. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> now, now, you've recently been to, to Facebook. Uh, you're the only fellowship awarded to an Australian for the Global Facebook Community Leadership Program. Can you explain more about that program and how you got involved and even if give us some insight into what Facebook is like at Silicon Valley? Uh, it's been a tremendous experience. So last, last January, uh, Facebook put out a call for 100 community leaders from around the world who were using Facebook products to make positive social change. Um, and, you know, the Family Centre's parents community online and, and our new adults community are set up through closed Facebook groups. Um, we use their product to run those communities. And I applied and it was an eight month application process. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're gonna hope in hell of getting in on this. And then I got the phone call and, this lovely woman from America who said, you know, your diabetes community is amazing. And, um, <laughs> and it just, it was terrific. So what that's given me the opportunity for is this 12 month leadership development program that kicked off at Facebook headquarters in Silicon Valley last October and um, has continued on. So we had another meetup in Singapore in January. There's been a lot of online training um, and development throughout the year. And we just had another meetup um, in California again a couple of weeks ago. And it brings all those community leaders together and wow, they blow my mind. You know, these people are working often from around their kitchen tables or in organisations like mine that don't get government funding um, and they are just 
mission mad people who are so captivated and, and lit up by their cause, whether that is um, black rights, women's rights, um, getting women on bicycles in developing countries. Um, you know, the, what else have we got? There's a guy from um, Chile who does a, has an organization called Wheel the World, which is about disability access to adventure sports. Um, there's our type one community. So it's held social, political. It's such an interesting group of people. Uh, and I think the opportunity for me has been wonderful because when I do diabetes professional development, it's often around data, devices, drugs. There's not a lot of the patient or consumer experience, especially in Australia. And it breaks my heart to go to that sort of development. Whereas going to Facebook has been about learning about how to build thriving communities. And it, it's, it's so uplifting and motivating to be around these people who are figuring it out along the way, just like me. Now you're talking about how important the community is and you touched on that you don't even get government funding. So how does the centre survive? Well, we were very lucky at the outset to have wonderful support from our three founding sponsors and I must acknowledge them. The State Government of Western Australia um, under Kim Haynes' Health Minister gave us our land um, and they donated that piece of land at the Osmond Park Hospital for us. And we had construction costs contributed by Telethon and Lottery West jointly. So we have a beautiful facility here that um, I'm very grateful to those agencies for supporting the construction of. Um, beyond that, we have had wonderful contributions from corporate and community sponsors for our fundraising, but we don't get any government funding um, and fundraising is always a challenge. We have diverse income streams. We have some income that comes in through our clinic that goes back into building more services. We have a community that um, is very willing and, and that's a growing thing to fundraise for us. Um, we do spend a lot of time writing grants, but right now, um, the focus for me is to try and develop uh, a future fund so that people can contribute to the Family Centre and their gift can continue to give in perpetuity um, as, as something that we invest. So I want to see the Family Centre shored up and sustainable into the future. Um, and I, I feel confident that our cause and our work will inspire people to want to contribute to that future fund project. Now, is that what's next? Is that the most important thing that you're working on or is there a dream project you're, you're currently working on? We're always working on dream projects. Um, <laughs> what, what I want to see um, and what's right in front of me and across our three-year plan is reach into the adult community. So the first three years of the Family Centre's existence, we targeted children with type 1 diabetes and their families. And we got almost comprehensive reach in that community um, very quickly, surprisingly quickly, actually. Um, but so, and that led to us expanding our vision and mission from looking after children with type 1 and their families to looking after people of all ages. And we made that call as a board and an organisation last year. And so that has really expanded our mission from targeting 1,200 people and their families to electors call. Now, if you're engaging with pediatrics, you've got to transition out of them and into the adult hospital services. And that's a really fraught and difficult time for people um, where they often drop out of the system. I did as a young person. And we want to be able to 
So we've got a lot of work to do to scale our services, uh, go regional, um, start really being able to reach um, reach every person impacted. So that's what's in front of us. Uh, that's very that's that's pretty inspirational stuff, Beck. Now we're running out of time. Uh, last question: If you can give one piece of advice to someone, whether they've got type one B diabetes or not, uh, what would it be? Um, my advice is. It's okay to have a pity party for yourself and feel sorry for yourself. There. Um, learn the lessons because what those tough experiences teach us has real value. Type 1 diabetes has been my teacher. Um, when I stand for the lessons it's taught me in courage and acceptance and resilience and discipline, uh, everything shifted for me. And I think those lessons are helping me live my best life. Wonderful. Now, Beck, that's all the time we have. But if people want to find out more about the centre or even your story, what's the best oh, way to do that? Oh, please come to the centre. We would love to see you. Um, we're open business hours, type 1 diabetes or anyone with type 1 in your world. We would love to show you through what we can do for you. Um, if you would like to reach out and check us out online, we're at www.type1familycentre.org.au and you can link in. Wonderful, Beck. Thank you so much for your time. You're an absolute inspiration. I'm sure you get that all the time. Thanks, Josh.